0: Almost every Medics Money podcast discusses finances in some way, as you would expect. But occasionally we come across a cause that is really important to us and really important to you. And it's our absolute privilege to be able to use this platform to promote those causes. So today we are talking to a doctor who started his own charity, Dr. Dominic Pimenta started the Healthcare Workers Foundation previously called Heroes during the midst of the COVID pandemic and we talk about the reasons why he started that and the amazing work that he's been doing. Dom explains it really well so I'm not going to put too many spoilers in here and I'm going to let him explain it to you but what I am going to say is if you are a healthcare worker that is struggling as a result of anything at work definitely check out the resources in the show notes over 850 healthcare workers have died as a result of covid and those 850 are mine and yours colleagues who have sadly passed away as a result of covid they leave behind families and loved ones who are bereaved but also dealing with a mountain of paperwork and financial problems and medics money is incredibly proud to be using our skills in conjunction with the Healthcare Workers Foundation to help these bereaved families. So, so far, for example, we've helped a bereaved family complete the paperwork necessary to claim the death in service benefits from the NHS pension scheme. We've helped with some probate and and Ed was even able to use his skills as an accountant to help the bereaved family of one healthcare worker find a job with a leading accountancy firm so if you are a bereaved family of one of our colleagues please make contact with the healthcare workers foundation and if they can help you that would be amazing and if we can contribute anything at all we will and there's a special email address for that and it's families at healthcare dot so families at healthcare dot also need to insert the standard disclaimer that the views expressed here are represent those of the individuals and not reflective of the views of Medics Money or the Healthcare Workers Foundation and you might infer from that that we get into talking about some important but slightly controversial topics. Right, let's listen to today's episode. Welcome to the Medics Money podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP My name
1: is Dr. Ed Cantalow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor.
0: And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dominic Pimenta. Hi, Adam. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for coming. I know that you're a super busy man uh, with a recently arrived newborn that we were just talking about before we started. So congrats on that. Um, but uh, for those of our audience who aren't aware of you and what you've been up to, why don't you give us a brief intro about what you're doing? Because, um, you know, I've been blown away by what you've done for the profession during this. So tell us about yourself and what you've been doing.
1: Uh, OK, well, so from the beginning, I was a cardiology registrar uh, in London last year um, and got quite concerned about COVID quite early on, I suppose, and had a few sort of family connections, like cousins, our husbands on stage, for example. So it sort of got an early inkling that this might be disaster. And then quite quickly came to sort of this weird, almost like I'd gone crazy and everybody else was like, you know, looking at me like you're hysterical about this um Because just looking at social media, listening to accounts from Italy, looking at Wuhan, we got friends in Iran. Like this thing looked really bad, and it was coming and coming and coming. You know, China and then Iran and then Tenerife and then and then. Actually, I think the first case was a few doors down from from my dad, down in Brighton. Uh, not a few doors down, but along the coast. So it seemed like this thing was coming, and then there there was this sort of concerted effort I suppose to try and raise the alarm a bit so the first thing the first sort of step outside of you know the traditional doctor box I guess was trying to corral the government into locking down earlier basically or or taking action because at the time it looked like we were doing nothing and you're sitting there doing the you know doing the numbers on a napkin looking at cases doubling every three days and thinking, well, where, where does this go? and Why would it stop? And that was what was really odd, was I kept asking people, why do you think this is not going to happen like this? And everyone's was like, oh, it's not going to happen. I remember speaking to one of my friends, and he was uh, going to research. And he, I was like, but look, cases are doubling every two days. In like two weeks, we're going to have something like 100,000 cases in, in the country why do you think that you're going to nip off to Amsterdam and go and do your research? And he was like, to be honest, it's a combination of optimism and naivety. And I was like, that is a really good example of proper cognitive dissonance that like everybody had, like everybody was the same, right? You know, there's no, everybody had this conclusion that this wasn't going to be a problem. But what nobody could answer to me when I did the little maths was like, why doesn't this happen? And that's exactly what did actually happen. So there was this frustration, and there's a few of us, my wife is a medic, she's a surgeon, and we were looking at the numbers, both sort of like very terrifying. And uh, and her cousin, actually, um, who's a senior banking um, guy, he was also very concerned, especially because he's got kids in school and stuff and vulnerable family. So between us, we were sort of trying to, to, to raise the alarm and we corralled this letter um, to government, I think in the sort of 14th or 15th of March, saying, you know, we should lock down as soon as possible. Um, and I did a few interviews on TV and that was all very scary and weird. Um, and then we quite quickly started to lock down. So it's kind of like the oil tanker was turning, um, but it just felt like we had to get ahead of it. And it came and it was really interesting was after that TV interview, I got a call from um, Michelle Dawson, who's an anaesthetist um, up north. And it was really out of the blue, like i would never spoken to her in my whole life. And she contacted me, I think through Twitter, I gave my number and she phoned me and she said, I'm on my day off. And she's so like, uh, she's so, what's the word, when somebody is so down to earth and yet doing amazing things. So she phoned me, she's like, I'm on my day off was the first thing she said. And I've got a line from a contact and procurement on 30 million FFP masks every week, um, but I can't get anybody to buy them. Can you help me? and I was like whoa, whoa whoa like what are you doing like you're on a day off and you're just working you know she's a full-time consultant we got drafted twice a year later just like I did and uh and so we had a little discussion and we tried to try to get that into government and 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 took that forward but it kind of gave me this idea that if she's doing that there'll be so much that's needed right not just PPE but like You know, everybody in the health service, having had a pretty bad day for a number of years, is about to have some of the worst days of their career ever. And what are they going to need? They're going to need food. They're going to need childcare. They're going to need counselling afterwards. They're going to need all of these things. Um, And we need to do this now because, as I said, you know, cases are doubling. It's like an exponential time. It's not your usual. Let's see how we go and, and deliver. We'll need twice as much as everything every three days for the next four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, depending on what's happening. So the oil tanker was sort of turning on lockdown and and that was sort of happening. But then we had this drive, I guess, to just get things going. So we we started the charity literally on Wednesday. Um, We drafted the first ideas. I like acronyms. So I wanted to call it Healthcare Work, sorry, Healthcare Extraordinary Response, Organization, Education and Support, which actually is an acronym for HEROES um and we actually um about that name a lot and I'll come back to that because it's quite interesting but at the time that's what we went for and we set up a sort of GoFundMe and 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 had an amazing response like every the thing is uh, I think the whole country as a whole was feeling like this sudden slide into this other world and everybody had gone through that looking glass so we'd gone a bit further but everybody was coming with us now as the government sort of announced lockdown and we started seeing the cases and I think by the end of that week the first I think Northwick Park went into Black Alert like straight away so it was quite it was very 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 sudden so we sort of hit the ground you know hit the iron very much when it was hot and I think that first GoFundMe we launched on the Friday with a video and it was it was such a you know a really really soul affirming experience really like from the starting from the beginning of week of almost like shouting into the void and being concerned to suddenly having something tangible in your hands and picking up the phone and I was calling a few of my friends some are in branding some are in marketing some do film stuff charity stuff other medics and everybody you know no matter what the ask was was like yes like I phoned um, a friend's brother and he was like I'll do your branding there's a guy called Ed Terry and I phoned uh, a friend of mine from home that went to school with like one of my best mates called Jack Shue and he sort of said okay let's do let's make this film let's do it straight away let's just record it Um, and we sent it out to a whole bunch of medics who put it in and then we had this film ready to go within 24 hours on Friday as our sort of launch video and I think The idea was basically just to try and wrap around healthcare workers as best as possible and fill in all the gaps, right? Welfare and wellbeing, physical, mental, whatever, do whatever we could. And we understood that we'd never be able to do everything. You're not even a close, not even a fraction of a fraction of the need. But if we could do something, then that in many ways was a very sort of positive poll for people when actually it felt like you could do nothing. It was a very frustrating situation. Um, So we had a huge response. I think that first weekend we raised about hundred grand by the sunday wow in
0: and then three I, days. And
1: I, yeah yeah it was it was it was i mean it was really like uh it, and actually the fundraising went on and on lots and lots of other charities came in lots of other groups came in And actually people you know and it was really about harnessing the goodwill of the public who really wanted to do something you know it felt like a war was kicking off and only a very very few number of people were suddenly thrust into the actual front line but everybody wanted to we wanted to help right and that was that was super uh a really sort of soul serving feeling and it was funny because I think that next week we had the clap for carers thing and my sister was living with us at the time and she helps I, I I I remember calling upstairs and saying "Bet, we're starting a charity are you in and she was like yeah <laughs> I was like yeah I'll do it, whatever so she became one of the trustees as well and um and she pulled me out she was like no we need to stop doing the charity stuff because it had already gone crazy after a week uh and we need to go outside and do this clap for carers thing and i was like oh this is just some rubbish gimmick like i'm not i haven't got time for this like what's the point like no one's going to do it and i remember as we were walking to the door suddenly hearing like this this pattering right coming and it was such a weird sound because you you can't really imagine what it's like to hear hundreds of people everywhere We live in quite a residential area clapping so we had this like clap 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 and as i was going to the door i just felt that suddenly i was just tearing up and i think what it was was like not maybe a little bit of relief so feeling like you're on you're on the outside a lot shouting in and then suddenly everybody's with you so there was that but there was also maybe this sensation that everybody was now striving for the same thing and that was quite um you know that again was a really nice thing when you're trying to do something to help people but feeling like there's a lot of support out there and we and we had loads of support i mean at businesses we had a biscuit straight away that raised a ton of money candy kittens got on board almost immediately and rate actually raised about 85 grand I've got a huge check from somewhere in my office I can't find it now um like a physical like you know like one of those old school surprise you at the door kind of check and uh and we got straight away like plugged in so a friend of mine Rashana um Median became one of the founding uh, trustees as well and she'd already got the ball running with childcare. so the idea was to get childcare grants out. We partnered with childcare.co.uk to to help get, because the people were really stuck, like suddenly had to pull 12 hour shifts, which they weren't normally doing, or suddenly had to go in. And actually quite a lot of people, quite a lot of medics, as I'm sure you know, decided to, if they were in contact with COVID, to live away from their families. So there was a lot of stranded families suddenly doing a single parent duty. I mean, it was pretty tough for me. So during that time, I got I got um, uh, redeployed to ICU quite quickly. And I'd done IT before, and it's quite a lot of the skill sets quite similar to cardiology anyway. And we spent a lot of time up there. But as cardiologists, it wasn't in crazy unfamiliar environment. But what was remarkable, I, you know, the nurses were pulled from wards where some of them had worked in the same job, you know, non-intensive care setting for like 15, 20 years, and then suddenly into a completely alien environment. And they were all there as well. And I thought that was that was incredible, really, because it's a big, it's a biggest jump, maybe for some medics, but it's a massive jump if you're a you're a nurse and you've only ever done sort of level 1 care level 2 care to suddenly jump into that um so that and then you know and again going into work every day during the lockdown sort of highlighted all these needs that the charity could address so food was a major issue i remember going in and feeling like this is a ghost town you know centre of london Uh, the pretzel closed down. They did this thing for a few days where they would give free stuff to healthcare workers, but then they just closed because there was no business. So actually getting into work, especially if you were like pulling long days and and there was no food. And actually for a while, like some of the supermarkets like were difficult to get to. So food was a real issue and people started delivering food and and we partnered with a few major companies, so Bombay Brasserie and and D&D Kitchens. And at some point, I think a couple of weeks into the charity, we were delivering about 2000 meals a day um, to London hospitals. And we did drops to Edinburgh and we did a few drops to the South Coast. Um, people got in touch, like Selfridges got in touch and gave us Easter eggs of all things. I think we delivered something ridiculous like 50,000 Easter eggs to hospitals on the South Coast. And it was one of those things where, you know, maybe a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily um saving a life and um, obviously we did a lot of PP stuff but I'll come back to that but the but the, the morale stuff actually I think really perked people up like seeing people with easter eggs seeing people being able to access counselling through the online platform that we set up um so it was you know it was a very nice time in the fact that going in doing a lot of pretty hard COVID work not not like hard in terms of like you know diagnostically hard or not even you know busy work just hard physical work because all we really did was prone the patients in ICU and prone them back again um, and run around putting fires out as the ICU expanded and expanded and expanded Um, and then coming home and then doing this quite sort of soul feeding work which was pretty stressful I mean it's hard to set up a charity in the middle of a pandemic and also when you have funds and we had a few like major backers, so there was a lot of like media work to do, and lots of you know whole new skill sets, business and accounting and all this stuff. And luckily, um, uh, Dushan's cousin Nej, is a like super executive, like he's a. I don't. I, I, like you know. If there's a level above platinum executive, that's where he sits. And it was really interesting working with him actually, because he he was the initial chairman, and he sort of led from very much from the front and spent hours on like the micro detail. But just understanding how to run an organization, how to make sure things are delivered, how you, when you say you do something, it gets done. All of these things, trying to trying to work it out. So it was, we were really lucky in the sense that we had some phenomenal people on board straight away, all pro bono, all doing everything, marketing. Uh, We had a great um, social media and communications team that just, you know, saw one of our interviews on TV and got in touch and wanted to help. And it was just so, you know, again, really soul feeding stuff to just say, I just want to help. And then we got and so the PPE stuff was really interesting. So obviously I was in ICU and there was really interesting acute shortages of stuff that we hadn't really anticipated. So masks obviously was super short where we were in ICU. It was fine, but we would get requests as a charity. To all sorts of dire situations. I remember um Rachel Clark, the author, contacted me and, and her hospice was actually about to close because of a lack of masks. Um they couldn't, they just couldn't staff it. They had COVID patients and no way to safely look after them. So we managed to get them through some of our connections through another sort of charity drive called Contractor's Appeal to deliver a thousand masks and um, they kept them open for a few more weekends. And, he, and those were the small but very tangible, very like you know deep stuff that we managed to 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 get done and then we had this real problem with eyes which obviously you were you know you guys were were fully aware but eye protection was really weirdly not available and and we were also maybe slightly naively using the kit like we used to just use it once and throw it away so it kind of came to the point that we were like and and Michelle was very interesting in this so she did the maths and she was like Each patient in ITU needs 30 sets of PPE per patient per day for all the staff that we'll see and then throw away. So that was like sort of 9 million sets of um, PPE per month per ITU, which the numbers are astronomical when you work that out nationally. So, we, I mean, we had a lot of cash at that point. I think we'd raised about 600 grand that we had. And we were like, well, what's the best way to deploy this? Because ultimately we could spend that 600 grand and we would have nothing to show for it after a day. And that's literally the the level of requirement. So it was very much our opinion that we needed to switch to reusable. So the first thing that we could do reusable very easily was visors. So we started creating, uh, I think when we bought 65 3D printers and started working with Makerversity, this guy called Nate Petrie got in touch with me. who's like, you know, this almost an artist of 3D printing. So he'd just done a project with NASA, doing some crazy thing with making surfboards that of recycled plastic from the sea we ended up working with um uh what are they called again oh no i can't remember i have to edit this bit out we ended up working with a major recycling um uh oceans plastics um uh company uh, and they gave gifted us about fifty thousand worth of visor plastic to create. So we had this great idea of like reusable visors with reusable material. And they were great. And what I was doing, because we had 3D printers, was we could print it, take it to ITU, I wore it. I was like, actually it's a bit uncomfortable. Actually we need when the band comes off, we'll need some way of attaching it. So ultimately we came up with this design which you could use a tourniquet for. Um, and then we started sort of printing them. And then we had the actual visor shields made and as you know Rolls Royce helped us out with that and cut it. So it was like a it was like a crazy time. And literally every single day was like some, you know, new crazy solution or crazy problem. or So in many ways, it was super interesting. Um, and we got into gowns and gloves and alcohol gel and just literally trying to do everything that we could to, to, to get stuff. And there were so many neglected areas. So I think one of the other big problems was logistics. So delivering, not necessarily having a supply, but just knowing, you know, how do you get stuff to a funeral care worker? How do you get stuff to a social care worker in the private sector? How do you get the community carers to get PPE? Like these were the really difficult, um, much more difficult answers to to, to to solve, really. Um, so 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 we continued down the PPE route and we made a whole bunch of stuff. We actually ended up funding a project from Oxford where they'd repurposed a scuba mask. So the FFP masks, obviously, and we looked at this, you could you can actually reuse an FFP mask. You can put it in the oven. It's not you know, obviously licensed, but you can sterilize it and it does work. And I did try it. You could put it in 60 degrees for half an hour if you're interested in the recipe. Um, but these, but that doesn't last. So these guys had the idea that they could repurpose an existing air seal, so a scuba mask with a, an anaesthetic filter, which actually the filters only cost 75p. Um, and they last up to a month at the pressures that you would normally breathe when you're just breathing for yourself. Obviously the much higher pressure, much higher flow, in an actual ICU in a circuit, but on a scuba mask, it lasts, you know, a month. So potentially these are these were projects that could protect the GP, for example, indefinitely, really. 12, 12 filters and they're protected for a year. So we funded their project and they actually managed to get their first prototypes out a few months ago. And, and there's about a hundred of people wearing them. I've got one on my shelf. Um, I can't show it to you. It's a podcast, but I can show it to you, Tommy. I'm interested.
0: One. Yeah, I'll describe it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. here it is. So it's, nice. like a, it's, like a, it's like a proper scuba mask. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they've repurposed this top bit. Um, and we and we took that through BSI and then we got that approved. So that's an approved product in this country. Um, and you can use it. But what's really interesting about the PPE staff is there is no medical standard for PPE. It doesn't exist, right? We talk about FFP2, FFP3. But actually, they're industrial standards. And all they refer to is the particulate filter. And a lot of the industrial field standards for, which I only found out obviously when I got really deep into this, for the material of plastic and how you can use it and the visibility, they're all for sort of high safety, high risk environments where, you know, there might be high temperatures or there might be molten metal and all this stuff. Whereas actually none of that, you know, the force that you have to apply has to make sure that, you know, you can't be ripped off suddenly by a you know, pneumatic drill or something. Whereas actually in the medical world, all it really needs to function is to protect you as a person from inhaling drops. I mean, it's a very low impact device. But there was so I think there was a lot of interesting regulatory stuff that went on to get approvals for this stuff. But what really highlights is actually, you know, pre-next pandemic, if there is one. That this is a real gap that needs to be addressed because there was so much product that was perfectly usable but couldn't get approved in the normal way because we're using industrial standards. So Oxford inspired me working on that as a project. And I hope down the line we'll have some much better like respirators and stuff and and, and the healthcare workers who sadly passed away in the last pandemic, which is another big project that we are working on will have much better protection. Um, so the other main thrust, and actually, you know, from the very beginning, one of the big worries in me working in ICU and us both being medics and having young kids was what would happen to our children if something happened. Uh, yeah. Funnily enough, I actually took a, a risk assessment at the end of my ICU stint, or, or sort of in the middle really, when everything's dying down. And they were like, oh, actually you're moderate risk. Do you want to keep working in ICU? And I was like, well, I'm a bit sad that I'm moderate risk, number one there wasn't much of an assessment on that personal level to start with. Yeah. And then we were, we were very much blind. And, and, and so we were really scared. And actually I I remember talking to my wife about wills about uh, who's going to look after the kids and suddenly having this thought right at the beginning of like, what, what would we want for our kids if one of us were to die or worst case, both of us, although my wife didn't go back to work because she was pregnant. Um, So the, the um the colliery of that really was to sort of think about from the early days about keeping some money back as a bereavement fund. And actually that's now grown up into the families program, which we launched over Christmas. But it's a huge need and it's really it's really so basically we've got a whole bunch of kids now um and families that in the short term, which obviously you know you guys at Money Medics know all about because you've been helping us out with this, need a lot of financial help, accounting help, legal help in the longer term, midterm, maybe counselling, but also there's a whole legacy, right? There's kids growing up who may never have met, you know, certainly one family who, who, who's, you know, whose daughter will never meet her mum who was a healthcare worker uh, who died from COVID. So mm-hmm. we have this, I think, and I don't know, I, I ascribe very much to this idea that uh, healthcare workers in generally are a sort of tribe, like, you know, like the army is or being, because it's a very unique, you know, a unique setting. I wrote a blog a while, about years ago, about is medicine just a job? And because I heard that phrase a lot, like people say, and actually, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that it can be positive and it can be negative, but one of the main things about it is you do have this exposure to life, you know, with a capital L, births and deaths and major trauma and 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 seeing people generally at the worst time of their lives in what for them is a, you know, a fraction of a fraction of their life. But for us, is constant, right? We see it all the time, next patient, next patient, heart attack, death, heart attack, cardiac arrest. So there is this sort of, you know, moral injury, but I think that binds people together in that respect. And I think, you know, and that kind of a, one of the founding ethos is really of the Healthcare Workers Foundation is that we are all bound, doctors, nurses, paramedics, by that exposure, by that life experience, by that culture, I suppose. And what would we want, you know, for our kids, if for somebody else to say okay we'll we'll give that to them, and I think the idea really is to say, "Well, you know it was a once in a lifetime pandemic, um regardless of failings, people have died, people have lost their lives, but what what can we do as a community as a tribe, I suppose, to make that right um or at least to step in and try and cover what we would have otherwise lost, so not just you know the basics of of, you know, education. So we're trying to support tutoring, you know, those extra lessons that mom or dad might have given, but also the connections, right? The mentorship, oh, you want to do an internship here or internship there. So one of the, um, which again, we're very grateful for you guys for helping us sort of, but one of our families wanted to do an accountancy intern. So we sorted that out for them. And the item that, you know, obviously it's a very bespoke sort of setting. It's not like the major childcare grant stuff, which is a big system. We're trying to do it more as a care worker. So we have a sort of primary, like really wonderful team. Uh, uh, Sammy Killen is our um, senior ops officer who runs the family programme. And, and then a few interns now on board as well, trying to research the problem. Um, so we hope to provide education and counselling and looking after their long-term well-being. We're going to launch a scholarship, you had it here first, uh, later on this year um, for supporting them to go to university and things. So it's a long term project that you know again is something that, that I think as a community of of medics and and beyond I think people would like to support and certainly something that again is very soul feeding in in what has been a relatively you know difficult year for for everybody I guess um it sounds like we've got then, an ex- then,
0: exclusive there you're launching a, just so, I understand, yeah. <laughs> so you're launching a scholarship for the bereaved uh fam- families the so that you know so that you know the bereaved um children can you know do 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 the scholarship is that right because i love yeah
1: so it'll be the so it'll be a scholarship to support the kids to go to university um uh we, we we might try and develop it I'm probably giving too much away now, but trying to speak to universities about the tuition fee side. But from our side, it would be about maintenance, you know, like a maintenance grant. So I think a lot of especially single parent families really worry at sending kids off to university just to cover their living costs. I mean, the grants don't cover it anymore Um, and also the debt they'll come out with. So if anything can make that easier to have that fund of, you know, I'm going to dip in my pocket for rent, et cetera. Well, we could be that pocket. And I mean, from our point of view, as a, you know, technically a large charity now, um, you know, fronting five grand, 10 grand a year in a few years time for one or two children, because there is a finite number. Um, It's not not a major ask, but we do hope to build it in and and to maybe expand it beyond university, think about supporting apprenticeships and trying to diversify our support. But initially that will be the, the plan. We haven't got a name yet. So if anybody wants to, to chip in and what we should how we should name this scholarship fund I don't know but that's that's the that's one of our sort of next big things but interestingly that's that's where the name change came from so we we originally obviously had this acronym called HEROES um, but we wanted a name change mostly because when we started working with bereaved families it just didn't feel right anymore and actually that was what we spoke about initially and I I spoke to some colleagues now like the name HEROES I think in many ways encapsulated what the public felt about healthcare workers but probably didn't feel right to healthcare workers in the regard that with the idea of heroes you get this idea of sacrifice that you signed up you know to die on the front line which certainly nobody in healthcare did they save save lives not to not to give their lives um so there's lots of negative connotations but also I think A lot of it was working with these families and approaching them with this name felt just wrong. And I, I, you know, maybe you can argue, actually, in many ways that, you know, these these families, these people are heroes in the truest sense of that word, but not in the sense that I think we would want to perpetuate. But the other side of things is, you know, it's not necessarily clear. And it's a confusing space of what everybody does. So we thought it might be easier just to say on the tin We are the Healthcare Workers Foundation. We cover all healthcare workers. We are here as a foundation in the long term. Um, And if you need help, we're here. And as a consequence of that, we've tried to offer our remit. So the next major thing we did is um, the Healthcare Workers Foundation was to open up this platform to try and actually gather healthcare workers, aggregate the space. So there's a lot of support for healthcare workers out there, but it's very fractured. Uh, if you move hospital to hospital or you move between professions or you're a paramedic or you're a nurse or etc etc there's different offers for you so one of the major things that we've tried to do through our platform which is called health chain and anybody with an nhs email can sign up to it Um, and just contact me if you're a healthcare worker and you don't have an nhs email we'll get you on there um is access to all our services so that's easy so what we do counselling child care etc but start to aggregate the services that are external to us and we've supported a few of those so for example the Royal Medical Benevolent Fund has a ongoing fund for medics so we gave them 25 grand last year similarly the Cavell Nurses Trust has a financial hardship fund we gave them 25,000 last year um so and and just trying to point people because I know as a doctor when I need help or for i I'd really find it difficult to navigate the space it's very tricky there's lots and lots of useful services there's lots of charities there's discounts but they're all over all over the place some you have to sign up for some really aren't discounts they're just adverts and you don't realize that until you're really deep in there so through health chain what we're trying to do is build that Aggregation service. And ultimately, you know, the long term dream is when you get your first job, whatever it is as a paramedic, as a social care worker, care worker, wherever you might be, OT, PT, whatever, you get a little card that says HWS. And that card entitles you to everything that anyone ever wants to support healthcare workers with, whether that's financial services, maybe in the long term whether that's online shopping priorities or counseling or childcare or referring back to us if you want us to support your hospital so through health chain we're trying to you know build the offer but also to engage and say well, what do you need now what's the what's the relevance now um, counseling is a big issue so we deliver continue to deliver counseling and actually i think even more required now But what we're finding is people maybe actually want a bit more one-to-one counselling, professional counselling, and actually want to maybe not be more in a private space again. Um, And similarly, welfare. So there's still lots of, you know, places in hospitals where they don't, I know, anyone who's worked in a hospital would know this, where there's no space to rest or the rest facilities is like an old desk in a cupboard somewhere and a coffee machine that's never worked. So we we started a project and we've just delivered our first sort of HWF room to Barnet Hospital. Um, and again, it's a really interesting harnessing the goodwill. So they gave us a little, um, uh, what do you call it, like a shopping list of, of of what they needed to renovate one of their rooms. And we've got them sofas and a lamp and a new digital radio. And we have budget for it. But what actually what we found was if we go out to uh, IKEA or oh, DFF, or one of these big companies, and we say, hey, we're the Healthcare Works Foundation. We want to, you know, would you like to donate? Most people are like, yeah, of course. We really want, we still really want to help. And again, that's, I think, a hugely, hugely nice thing to do. And we, I think one of the funny things about the morale work is morale is actually very cheap in the NHS. You know, a pizza uh a so nice true. sofa a tv that works so you know, true. i'm just thinking oh wow that sounds like the best day ever at work but you yeah know, it's it's really remarkably not <laughs> unusual in any way other life like works. yeah
0: you're right morale <laughs> is cheap like a working pen maybe even somewhere to park your car and a free yeah. pizza right that's it i'm all in whatever you want like, i'll do it
1: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so we actually um So one of my other side gigs, I think, before I got too busy with family and things and and took a slight swerve, but was I I set up a little think tank, and and one of the threads was about healthcare workers research because we were finding we wanted to answer some of these questions in a sort of data driven way, Um, and you know being a massive problem trying to address, you know, three million healthcare workers in the UK could never hope to address it, but what we can do as a charity is be quite evidence based in what we do, collect data, renew the data, deliver back in a better way each time and then ultimately say hey look we we spent I don't know two grand on this welfare room but look at what you save in staff engagement morale sickness days keeping people imposed how much money does that save the trust Yeah, you know, the cost is like 10 pounds on the pound when you actually do the maths if you can stop people leaving which is a huge cost so the so we had this little think tank, and one of the uh, uh, ideas was, um, and we sort of rolled that back into charity now. But we released a paper recently about how to prevent this potential exodus. But we looked at some of the social media responses and surveys, and there was a big thread on social media about what is the, you know, what are the cheap wins? What are the easy things to do to improve morale? And it was it was the most basic things like free water, you know, like. Have you ever gone to a workplace and gone? Oh, I wish I, I'm so thirsty. There's no nothing to drink, and that being an actual adult workplace, except in the NHS, everybody knows that that is a real problem. There's nowhere to drink. You can't drink the patients' water. There's the water tank doesn't work. The tap's not edible. There's no cups, you know. And that's these are tiny, tiny. Free parking was right up there as a requirement. Loads of rest spaces, loads of hospitals were built with never any rest spaces for any staff because they just forgot to put them in, essentially. And there was this weird drive with hospital design in the early 2000s where everybody wanted to be able to see the staff. So they thought they'd push them all out onto the ward. And that's why you have these weird nursing stations now, which are just in the middle of wards and things. But actually, that then eliminates all of the private work that you still need to do. You still need to have private conversations. You still need to hand over. You still need to rest. So there's, there's big gaps in trying, to, in trying to improve some of these things um and there's and there's it makes a nice list of easy easy wins that we can work down as a charity and that's kind of what we've been doing addressing a sort of a pre-implementation stage and the post-implementation stage and trying to do a little bit of maths and say look what is the economic argument because what's quite interesting about us as a charity is that we ultimately so so if you give us money as the public you get something back directly to you, as in your healthcare service is better provisioned and the staff are happier and they work longer and they are safer, et cetera. Because we and we know this, we know that, you know, in a well-staffed, well-resourced, well-moralised um, uh, st- workforce delivers better patient outcomes. Um, and there's a huge, huge problem now, which has always been the problem from the beginning. Very, you know, what, what struck me as wrong last year was when we were told that the NHS was ready for COVID, when actually we knew at that point that the NHS wasn't ready for anything. Uh, you know, objectively, the markers of of any you know A and E operating, uh, any measure, right, of any metric of a healthcare system, we were failing on at uh, the worst ed ever on record, and then COVID hit. So all of that backlog, I think about 4.7 million patients now on waiting lists. And and actually, the one-year waiting list is up by about 20,000%. Like it's gone up to like 200,000 now from 1,000. So to get through all of that and to look after the staff and to recover their moral injury and to keep them going through this is a momentous task. And if we lose even a fraction of those people who've said that they've gone um and you know I myself am in research now so I'm not a jobbing doctor anymore um and I completely sympathize people need a break but there is the thing is the demand is there so what can we do as a charity what can we do as a tribe I suppose to make it better for ourselves and also to harness some of that goodwill that still resides and to harness some of the you know the political capital I suppose of people paying attention to the problems that have been there a long time and I guess that's our, you know, that's our long-term mission now.
0: I mean, I love it. I mean, just listening to you talk about it, um, you're very matter of fact about it uh, and modest about it, but I I actually have some limited personal experience in understanding just how hard it is to do what you've done because Yeah, we first worked together on PPE because I I had a similar experience, really. Like I got an email from an Italian ITU saying we are like in crisis mode and those guys are unflappable. Mm -hmm. They don't flap. And I was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. So I actually Mm -hmm. pulled my kids out of school two weeks early and I was rummaging around in my garage uh, and I ended up with some welding goggles um, and an old face mask. And that was my only PPE. And I was like, this cannot be right. We just couldn't get it. And then long story short we ended up making 10,000 visors with Rolls-Royce. And again, the goodwill there, Rolls-Royce did that all for free. I believe that they did it all for free the whole way through. Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. And they didn't even want publicity. They were just No, like, they didn't. They didn't. they didn't want it. And so, so we, we yeah.
0: accidentally, basically us, made 10,000 visors. And then we realized we could make many more, but we didn't have the capacity. And then someone told me about mm-hmm. what you were doing. Mm-hmm. I gave you a call. And within within a month, I think we churned out an incredible number just purely because you'd scaled it up. and. I was just like, wow, that's really impressive. And then I think the other thing is uh that the power of the profession to help itself, you know, within the profession, we have all these amazing skills. If we all pull together, we can do this. And um, yeah, it's been really rewarding to help you guys in tiny ways with our uh, expertise that we have with accounting and stuff and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's been really great. And to, to push it like this, but um, I wanted to talk about a few other things uh, outside yeah, sure. of this, because another thing that I see you doing a lot, and I also admire you for this is Twitter because I like Twitter, right, but it's got quite polarised debates on it. And from a financial advice point of view, me and Ed see amazing advice, but also terrible advice on Twitter all the time. Mm -hmm. And we just just don't like conflict, Mm -hmm. so we just let it fly by and we just concentrate on Doing what we're doing, which is providing authoritative financial content, you know, ourselves and not getting in a Twitter argument. But you like a Twitter argument. Uh, I think you once described yourself as a professional Twitter troll. But it is so important what you've been doing because there's been so much misinformation on social Mm. media, which is you know it's got strengths but the big downside for social media in my view is the misinformation but you actively sort of take that on head on but what, what is that like because i hate conflict so,
1: yeah, so i suppose that's interesting so i found myself at the end so i left i left my job in uh well the public circumstances last year um and we should talk about that yeah i suppose we should so i resigned um and i resigned over the fact that after all of this all of this effort you know all of this uh massive scale um we had this whole coming saga where he got to the point where he was telling us a fairy tale about eye tests and castles and things and actually to be honest I wasn't that bothered I mean I don't there were loads of advisors you know it was Neil Ferguson I can't remember her name now the the Scottish deputy CMO who broke lockdown rules and you know, people broke them for lots of reasons, you know, family and friends and and whatever. But what was so brazen was the fact that there was this defense of, oh, there was no, there was no breach. And that actually the lockdown wasn't important. And you know, I seen firsthand, and as as many of us had, that there was this crazy tsunami of the sickest patients, like the horribly sick patients, really difficult circumstances. And then as the lockdown sort of filtered through, those patients suddenly dissipated, just like a wave receding, right? It just disappeared. And we had time to get them better. And it was interesting because we saw that time was the most important thing. Like these patients need a lot of time on ventilators to get well. And we had this issue. And, so, and, and actually what was, I found particularly galling was this whole willingness to throw all of that under the bus. Um for the, the really the sake of an apology, right? If there was just an apology say, I'm sorry, I broke the lockdown rules, I worried about my kid. I don't think anyone really would have given it, like, people would have understood. It's been hard for everybody. And I would have understood. But I, I and it was just this idea that after all of this, all of the failures, everything else, we would be so flippant to disregard that that I just couldn't stomach. So obviously I, you know, tweeted that I would resign if Dominic Cummings didn't and then I but I never thought he wouldn't. I just thought or at least not apologize I thought that would be mad like how could this government be so callous but actually in retrospect and obviously the retrospect is very long now it's nearly seven months since I finished so I, I continued working in ITU until September um, and then that was in my notice and then I left and we had this ridiculous situation where we just kept things open for Christmas we had another 75,000 deaths over Christmas we had the same thing again the same hit to healthcare workers the same and actually you know there's there, not to get too too into the politics of it but there is there is a duty of care i think at government and fundamentally that was not met um and that just wasn't enough for me but i think and i think many people sympathize as well like i was pretty broken at that point um and i think the right thing for me and my family would have been to try and take a break and actually we ended up shielding in the second wave anyway so it would have been really difficult. I would have had to leave the family house. So it, in many ways, it be- continued to become a better and better decision. But what was interesting, so what I, I found myself to sort of lurch into the misinformation side, sort of thinking I still want to you know, be part of this discussion and actually having a lot of, I'm in research now, so looking at COVID a lot, um, and just, as you say, like on social media, finding the worst takes, you know, all these people saying it's false positives or all these people saying COVID doesn't exist or all these people saying there will be no second wave. But again, just doing the math and saying we still have COVID. No one's vaccinated. We are interacting. What What, what is it? What is the magic here that you think is going to happen that clearly didn't happen? And I found that incredibly dangerous that we would then start to to denigrate. And actually, interestingly, so those those misinformation, you know, the Carl Hennigan's of the world, the Professor Gupta's, they, that went all the way to the top of government. And that's I think that's one of the big problems. A lot of us underplay how important social media is now. You know, not what people say on Twitter um, used to just be, oh, whatever, Twitter. But now that's news, right? Those tweets, my tweets sometimes end up in newspapers, wrong, rightly or wrongly. Um, and uh, I often don't like that. But. That the you know it it's become sort of part of the fabric of our society, if you will, part of our civilization, and that means that we need to take much better care of it. We need to be much more aware of the information that's out there. So I started, uh, you know, and was, you know, I started with a guy called Ivor Cummins, who actually, interestingly, I was not going to pay attention to him, but some of his videos started getting shared in doctors' groups. I watched some of his videos. And within the first three minutes, I think I did like a spit take about 10 times. Like, how can he say that? That's not... I think there's one video where he says something like 80% of the population are already immune to COVID. And this was in September last year. And I was like, but that doesn't make any sense on like so many levels. Like if they're already immune, then why do we have a wave? We already have herd immunity and there's no such thing as You know, and I just thought I should sit down and, and spend some time on this. So I, I sat up for about three hours and an hour just going through it, and watching the video. But then, interestingly, I just kept trying to like keep going through it and finding, you know, there's other ways, and getting get very frustrated. And eventually, I started doing these Twitter live videos where I would just literally sit down with a board and say, "Look, this is ridiculous because of like the basics of biology. Like, if you don't meet somebody, you can't catch COVID from them. That is a fact. Like, it's not like it's immutable." And I'm actually, finding it quite cathartic in many ways. And 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 I think those videos were as much for me as for (laughs) as for anybody else. And then I kind of got a little bit more um and what's interesting was I would get a lot of like um people legitimately saying, well, you know, you're saying this, but this professor's saying this. And I was like, well, they haven't published anything. I was like, well neither have you. And I was like, that's actually a pretty good point. So <laughs> I decided that actually some of the, you know, some of this addressing needs to be done. I mean, we have a system, right? We have a system of peer review. If you want to say something scientifically, you write it down, you hypothesize, you back it up with evidence, you reference that evidence, you put it in a journal. If the journal looks at it, sends it to some other people. Is this nonsense? It's not. Let's put it out. That's the system. And what we had was a lot of, you know, prominent people publishing the Daily Mail and the Spectator, things which were obviously wrong almost immediately, or, you know, very controversial opinions that didn't really match up with evidence or had a lot of flaws in it. So I got involved in a group um, that were doing a lot of research and and supported them. So we put this Jon Snow memorandum out, which was against um, uh, the idea that herd immunity was somehow a good idea. And it kind of, again, one of those, you know, at the time people were discussing herd immunity as this great, uh, a great idea again, um, focus protection, no more lockdowns. When actually, you know, we saw what happened when you tried to go that. We tried to do that ourselves in March. We tried to do it again almost in November and October. Um, And we're looking at, you know, the absolute horror of what's happening in India right now. Um, And all those people are very, very quiet again. Um, But that was the horror that we were sort of worried about. So we published that. And then there's a few other articles that try to sort of publish about misinformation. Um, But the problem is it's just endless and it's exhausting as well. Like I, I initially I tried to respond to every single comment. And I just thought, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I could lose my life like this. Like it's infinite in terms of my actual capacity to think and respond. There's more time here than I actually have minutes wise to live, let alone look after family and work and everything else. So I tried to do videos. And then after a while, I just, I just started blocking everyone. Um, and actually I've been against that for quite some time. But what I've kind of realized is if, you know if you block someone on Twitter it's not because you dislike them you know, it's not, it's not a personal thing. It's like I just don't want to read your tweets. I don't want to take up my headspace. You know, if you want to read my tweets, they're on Google. You can read them all the time. You don't have to, you know, log into your Twitter account and, and look at them. You can just look at them. They're just there. Um, and, you know, loads of people block me because they don't want to, to read what I read. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I've made my peace with that. But it is the only way to manage what becomes a torrent. And actually as a bloke, I get a fraction of a fraction of what some of my female colleagues get, and that is abhorrent. Like some of the trolling of senior, you know, very super qualified female professors, public health, um, uh, Oxford University Evidence Based Medicine, who have been, you know, at the forefront of the pandemic, publishing, actually publishing their work as well, Um, have been getting some torrid abuse um, as targets, and that's just. And, yeah, and, that, and that kind of makes a lot of... And actually, interestingly, I've come to a sort of slight realisation now that actually maybe so, I'm going to do less, much less on social media now. I think the conversations that are being had are being had by others and maybe there is less to... to. But Or maybe, again, it's just something that you can't have your toe in for that long because it is horrible. But it does... It, it, the whole thing needs reform. And I think as it grows up, as the internet grows up on a broader schedule, people will start using it in a little bit more you know linkedin is a really interesting example right that is a professional social media website and the way that people conduct themselves on there is completely different to how they conduct themselves on twitter despite there being only very material the only material thing is people know who you are and where you work and that means that you have to be you know you have to accept consequences like you do in any other part of your life you know if you go to the pub right now and start spouting abuse at someone you'll probably go home in a police car and the reason that we don't have that on social media has always been because people wrote that off, but we can't really accept that, you know, much longer. And as medics, it's quite interesting how we how we conduct ourselves um, on on social media. And I was always, you know, very being relatively, um, I guess, prominent now, uh, not in the esteemed as in the obvious, you know, there he is kind of sense. Um, that there is a code of conduct, right? And you have to conduct yourself in a way that you would if you identify as a doctor, as what GMC says as you would if you were, you know, in any other situation as a professional. And I think that's difficult in many ways when you want to be like that guy and, and uh when someone's coming, you know, but I think that also does make it a kind of you know a code to to not go crazy with it. Um, because you could do. And I think I most recently I've just decided to to stop actually for a little bit. Uh, to give myself some headspace and finally that's because I had a baby so because I had a baby I spent a lot of time feeding her which means I'm just sitting there with my phone nothing else to do and then you can you can just get lost in it and I think if you don't make some of those mental breaks if you don't have that mental space for yourself and that's true of any walk of life really but I think we, we aren't maybe wary enough of how much mental space we are or mental health we are potentially sacrificing with use of smartphones digital devices content and what is to be said for you know those moments of of peace and quiet with a lovely podcast perhaps <laughs> or something Definitely. like that so you know there is i think we, we all need to take better care of ourselves and i think as a consequence i've decided to do less not none but far less i think and you if know. you do tweet
0: it'll be at like 3 a.m with a load of typos in it because you're feeding the baby simultaneously right
1: well exactly exactly so me and the american crowd are now uh, Bonding much more because they're the only ones awake when I start tweeting these days. So uh, <laughs> if, if, if at all, if at all. Um, but
0: yeah. Well, awesome. I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Um, but
1: what what one thing I wanted to get clear is
0: if someone's listening to this now and they think, ah, oh, I want to get involved in this, how how can people help you? What do you need? Because I remember when you came to us and you were like, look, we need help with accounting, probate and that kind of stuff. And, and fair shout to our network, uh, because. Oh, you've sent out an email saying, can anyone do this pro bono? And every 47 of this country's best advisors emailed straight back saying, "Like we'll do it. So, you know, just what you're saying about the everyone wants to help us, which is great. So if someone's listening to this right now. They're liking what they're hearing. How can they help the Healthcare Workers Foundation?
1: So I think there's, there's three ways that we, people can help. I think, first of all, money. And obviously, I'm always going to say that. I'm the chairman of a charity that potentially is trying to treat an infinite need. And the thing is we know that we can deliver counseling, for example, um, and that's a infinite, almost infinitely scalable need. Um, childcare grants, similarly. Um, And if we have lots of capital for large projects like welfare projects and support, then we can diversify in terms of what we do. So fundraising is always, always, always appreciated, whether it's from your own pocket or actually I think what's nicer is to fundraise and set up events. And we have Just Giving, we have a fundraising team. So just get in touch if you want to set something up. And we actually have a huge um, resource in our comms and media teams um, and we're actually just started, sort of working with NHS Million and 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 their team, and and um, to support social media as well. So there's a huge reach, right? So if you want to do something for us, then please do get in touch because you know we're we're doing a whole bunch of stuff later on we're looking at setting up mentor networks so if you're in a profession um and you want to be a mentor to some of these bereaved families then again i think that's hugely worthwhile cause and obviously it's kind of what you know medics money has been doing in, in 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 this small regard but using those networks um and i think you know further down the line we 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 want to try and set up a much more, much more services. So if you have ideas, and this is the other key thing, we need your engagement. We want people to sign up to Health Chain, which is the platform, so we can keep engaged with you. But what do you need? Like, tell us what you need, right? Like, I need this. I need to make my life easier. And really, my goal is, you know, I'm a healthcare worker. What will make my day better? And I'm interested. And that that is the fundamental mission. So anything, you know, from setting up, you know, the, those 47, you know, pro bono advisors, Well, maybe actually we could set up a uh, some sort of network or, you know, something for people to regularly tap into for healthcare workers, or we could build a financial service. I mean, you know, the possibilities are limitless, right? If if your remit is what's going to make my life better, you know, it's funny because like, for example, you know, this healthcare workers have pretty steady jobs, right? So why isn't there like easy, or they used to be, I think, easier access to some financial products. But we could do that as a charity. We could set up as a platform. We could negotiate. And whatever your ideas are out there, I mean, we know we are all ears. We have a great team. We're always looking to expand the team. We've just brought on two interns. We could probably do with at least a couple more people to organise fundraising and um, to organise some of the engagement work, going more to hospitals. I think ultimately building the network right now is probably the most useful. So if you want to come and help us, I think one of the biggest things that we could do is you represent us as a charity to where you are. So what does your network need? What does your hospital need? What does your trust need? Um, And tell us, you know, and help us organise it and get those people signed up. If they want childcare or counselling, then get them signed up onto Health Chain and and get them funding. Um, Because one of the funniest things that we've struggled with is despite having all this stuff, you know, counselling and childcare, PPE and all the arms of it, trying to get people to say, oh yeah, I want that. And actually, you know, sign up and engage because I think the healthcare workers are overwhelmed. There's a lot of white noise. It's hard to engage them. So engagement is probably one of our biggest issues, really. So anything that helps, whether you want to represent us or advertise for us or be uh, representative for us, then get in touch. And 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 we are all ears and always open.
0: I love it. I love what you've done already. Um, I'm really excited about the future. I'm delighted that we're working with you in a tiny, tiny way. But for us, it's been immensely rewarding. And it just shows that actually, our skill set is really niche. But we can help the families of bereaved uh, of uh, of bereaved colleagues which has been so important. So um that's so good. So you mentioned a little bit about what's next for you. I'm absolutely gutted that the NHS has lost you as a clinician and that is an absolute, you know, tragedy really for the NHS that we're losing so many good people. But what's next for what's next for Don?
1: So um well I'm I'm going to continue doing the research side of things I, I wouldn't say i've lost the nhs i think um i think in the longer term i need to it's funny because i i started missing it basically a week after i left in terms of clinical work but the problem is i we went you know the vaccinations and then we were shielding but i think eventually it will be going back because i don't know what capacity yet probably just to finish internal medicine or something um and then i don't know really i think the charity keeps me sane out of hours the research keeps me sane in hours and in the family. And it's funny enough, you know, as we sort of circle back to where we started, but the family becomes the priority really, like, you know, seeing the kids, seeing, looking after my family, seeing the baby, like stuff that actually I wouldn't, I wasn't doing, you know, weekends, nights, long shifts. You don't see the kids for sometimes days at an end. And that really isn't, you know, at this fragile time, I think, you know, maybe a few years down the line might go back to all of that, but, for now, I think there's uh, there's other priorities, I think. And to be, you know, to be absolutely honest, they've suffered enough with all my hijinks in the last year. And I think I owe them at least, you know, a lot more of my time for at least a, a little while longer. So so that that will be me up at 4am with the baby and, you know, all the rest of it. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's enough for me, I think, for now. Awesome. I think that's
0: really, yeah, just getting the balance right is so important. And um, it's a cliche, but they do grow up really fast. Uh, So make the most of it. Well, I mean, yeah, just thanks so much for everything you've done. Thank you so much to your team at Healthcare Workers Foundation. It's been so impressive. I hope that this has helped to raise awareness of what you guys are doing. Uh, And I'll drop all of Dom's relevant contact details in the show notes below, because it's really important that if you are struggling or you need help, Just let Dom know and it sounds like there's a good chance he can help you. But for now, uh, thank you so much for your time, Dom. Uh, It's great to chat with you as always. Take care.
1: That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Tommy. And thanks so much to to Medics Money for all their support as well. It's really meant a lot to us.
0: The least we can do. Take care, mate.